Thanks for pressing play. Sustaining critical wartime skills during interwar periods is a recurrent and ongoing challenge for military surgeons. Did you realize that amputation surgery for major extremity trauma is exceptionally common in wartime? How can military-civilian partnerships increase major amputation surgical case volume to help sustain critical wartime skills? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Military Medicine and War Docs present a Ready Medical Force Special Collection. We speak with the authors of recently accepted journal articles addressing the key readiness issues in operational medicine and discuss the importance of their findings. On this episode, we speak with retired Air Force Colonel and orthopedic trauma surgeon, Dr. Patrick Osborne. He discusses his military medicine paper, Impact of Civilian Patient Care on Major Amputation Case Volume in the Military Health System. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Dr. Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. Patrick Osborne to Wardox. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Doug. It's great to see you. So today we're going to talk about your paper that discusses the impact of civilian patient care on major amputation case volume in the military health system. What led you to write this article and what questions or concerns were you addressing when you put it together? It's stemmed from our KSA work at BAMC with myself and my co-authors and very similar to some of the issues that we found with KSAs when we really drilled down into amputations we found that a hemipelvectomy was lumped in with a fingertip amputation. And that kind of blossomed into, all right, we need to separate out what is a major amputation, what is not. And the really kind of came to my mind and something we don't see frequently, thankfully, but every once in a while, and certainly downrange, you have to make the decision on as the primary treatment, as the initial treatment to save other parts of the limb or to save the patient's life that you have to make that very difficult call to do a major amputation without maybe even having a chance to discuss it with the patient. My personal feeling on that is that that is not technically hard, but cognitively, that's exceptionally hard. And I think the thinking and the considerations and certainly the acuity of the situation for a traumatic amputation is far different than somebody who has failed limb salvage or a newly known cancer that has gone through chemo and that you've been planning this for a while. And so I really wanted to focus on those traumatic amputations that were early on in a patient's treatment course, certainly can be much more difficult, not necessarily planning, but in deciding that that is the right answer and find where those opportunities are and see who's actually doing that. Because again, that is what is required in the expeditionary setting is that you may not get a chance to talk to the patient. You may not have much time to decide. So what exact specialties are expected to manage patients that may or may not have indications for amputations in a downrange setting? We looked through all of the, the M2 database and we found that orthopedic surgeons, general surgeons, and vascular surgeons were by far the 99% probably of, of who did amputations. And then you'd have some others in there 
you'd find emergency medicine physicians who would do fingertip amputations and maybe and things like that. But those three specialties are really who the data showed are doing those amputations, both in garrison and downrange. So looking at both those data sets, downrange and in garrison, what percent of the group of deploying surgeons actually performed major amputations downrange? And how did that compare to the same population's experience in the MTF? I believe one paper, it was looking at general surgeons, is about 60% of deploying general surgeons had to do an amputation. I forget the exact number, but it was certainly 60% or greater of orthopedic surgeons. And I don't recall offhand the percentage of vascular surgeons, but my guess is that it's, again, fairly common. And so it is something that is definitely required downrange. Now, the other part with the downrange data is not really well broken down into is it what we would consider a major amputation is it a, a finger is it is it a, a, a transfemoral amputation that that we did not get into i'm not sure that all of the studies really looked in that level of detail from what i can recall right now but the the unfortunate thing is that we saw that there was a great number of surgeons less than 10 percent across the military health system during the time frame that we looked at that actually did a major amputation in garrison. And that that is, to me, pretty clear evidence that we're not getting enough reps for people. And does that tra- translate to better or worse outcomes for patients? I don't know, but it's it's not a far leap to say that not having experience in garrison may may make your decision making or, or your ability to do something downrange less effective. So why is that direct patient care experience important? And why can't we cover that procedural experience gap with coursework and or simulation? And I think coursework and simulation certainly have a role. And the technical aspects of certainly a guillotine amputation, initial amputation, that's if you know your anatomy, you can probably do those things. It certainly gets more complex when you have to finally close an amputation. But in many cases downrange, these are temporizing amputations. They're going to get definitive closure, probably further debridement and and even a higher level of amputation on the conus end. But where it's really difficult is the cognitive part, is the, the mindset and the ability to take a situation, a highly fluid situation, potentially a patient who's not doing well and deciding that, I have to take this guy's leg to save to save his life. That's not an easy decision for anybody. And you, I don't think anybody ever gets really comfortable with that. But if you've never had to deal with that, except for in residency or fellowship, I think that's a very difficult decision. And, and I've seen cases myself where I can understand the reticence to do an amputation, but I, it very clearly did not help the patient in the the further treatment courses. So having that even basic comfort level and here's what my triggers are for an amputation here, here's what the literature says, that's where coursework and simulation can help. But here's how I go through this decision that I don't think can be taught outside of actually doing it. The definition for major amputation that you used in the paper was defined as proximal to the metacarpals and metatarsals. Is that standard? And why did you choose to exclude some of the more common amputations like toe and finger amputations? What we found with going through the CPT codes is I don't think that we based major amputa- the major amputation definition on any one other paper or, or other recommendation. I think it falls in line with some of the literature out there, but it was mainly our own construct 
in the fingers and toes, it was really difficult in some cases determined because all the ones that we ended up calling major amputations, some of those in that first cut, they ended up being cut because it ended up being something that was more distal. And we just felt that taking a single toe, a single finger, and it, the hand surgeons will will debate the finger amputation is, is not worthy. But technically, it is not difficult. And in many cases, I think, again, anecdotally, that if somebody's going to be amputating a finger, there's not going to be a whole lot of argument that the finger needs to be amputated and at what level. But that doesn't catch everything. It was just a way to cone down to those things that might be more difficult in rehabilitation, on prosthetic fitting, and all these kinds of things, which could lead to the argument, well, you should have done transtibial and, and above and, and wrist and above for upper extremity. I think you could debate that a bunch, but that was what we kind of settled on and, and felt made sense. You found that 1,184 major amputations were performed, of which 120 were traumatic at the 16 busiest MTFs. How do you think these numbers compare with the true experience since work done in fellowships, mill-sieve partnerships, and during ODE, moonlighting, was not included? That's a great question. I have no idea because the data is not there. I, I would love to include all the mill-sieve partnerships, the resource sharing agreements, and ODE if we had reliable data because I, I think that is very important and it plays right to not the the technical aspect and the team aspect, but to the decision-making aspect that I think is so important with this kind of procedure. And so if that data can be uh, gathered reliably and consistently, I think it absolutely should go in. Now, when it comes to fellowships and other training and coursework and uh, shadowing, things like that, again, you're you're not the one making the decision, so I, I really don't think it's the same. But when you have an, a, a staff surgeon, attending surgeon, wherever they might be, having to do these procedures, I, I think that has value and should be counted as just the data is not consistently there. What did you consider the most important finding in your data set? And what was the most surprising to you? I think there really it was not as many amputations as I thought there might be seen outside of Walter Reed and Bamsey. It was, it was really centered at those two sites. I was surprised by the number of traumatic amputations that we found, and certainly at Bamsey. And I think that the value of that is incredibly high. Not that we want to look for amputations, but I think putting people in a setting where they might have to encounter that is very important. And I would love to translate this into looking at those URSAs, those those sharing agreements, the, the TAAs, the training agreements that many places have with local areas and, and those MILSIV partnerships, I think that data would be very interesting to see if this kind of exposure is being garnered through those kind of agreements. Does the rest of the team, the medics, nurses, anesthesia, et cetera, specifically need exposure to traumatic amputation care? Or is embedding teams in trauma centers or working at a place like BAMSI sufficient to get the experience of caring for the critically injured with multiple different mechanisms and resultant injuries? I think there's two. In the acute phase, I think it, there's a fairly limited group that really would benefit from greater exposure. Again, you know, the surgeon, I think anesthesia with a more complex polytrauma patient, things like that, they would certainly benefit from that. That is entirely separate from the rehabilitation, prosthetics, all that 
which very few places are going to be able to do. There's certainly a, a not wide expertise. The money that, and infrastructure that's required to do that well is is very involved. So I, I think you have to separate that out. I think taking care of an amputee is always eye-opening. I think it is of value to therapists, to nursing, to many people on the team. But looking at the, the decision-making part and the, the acute treatment part, I think that's a, a much more limited focus area where you could get away with getting benefit from a more limited arrangement, limited team involvement at a MILSIB site or, or a, a, a civilian site nearby. So you've mentioned several ways that we could address this to get that experience and exposure to orthopedic surgeons and general surgeons and vascular surgeons increased. But you also made the point that there's limited time, money, and personnel. If you had to prioritize the solutions of improving access to that exposure and experience, what would you say is the top thing that the military could do to address this issue? I think being judicious in what MTFs you expect to do, amputation care in general, but certainly traumatic amputations. I think there's only a few sites that are really set up well to, to act as a trauma center in their local area. That might bring them that patient population. I, I think having the MILSIV partnerships, this is where putting them at a level one trauma center, whether it's shock trauma or USC, what have you, that is where you're going to see these kinds of injuries most commonly. And I think that if you want to focus on this skill set in particular, and, and you'll you get other readiness value from that, obviously, as well. I, I think outside of a major trauma center, the frequency that people see these kinds of injuries is, is pretty low. And so I think it's a great role for the, the MILSIV partnerships. But again, how many people can you put through that? And then once they leave that assignment, how do you sustain that skill? And that's that's really a difficult question. What's the next research study in this area based on what you found? And what would you want to answer next based on the findings that you got? I, I, what I would really love to do at some point is, and we've done some preliminary work on this, in the, the, our study here with amputations, other, the KSA program, the studies we've done, KSAs, nothing ties back to patient outcomes yet. And nothing's been, quote unquote, validated by looking at patient outcomes. And we've looked at data from the military orthopedic trauma registry and there's in, in daughter and the joint trauma registry there's so much data in there it's truly unbelievable and the work those people have done is remarkable but coming up with where somebody is stationed what their volume of some of these critical wartime skills are and then look and see if it when it when they've deployed if that impacts outcomes you'll never get incontrovertible evidence but strongly suggesting evidence that, hey, this matters, that to me is, is really the most important question because then you can really cone down to what do we need our people to, what skill set do they need to have? They need a skill set for in garrison care, for dependents and, and other beneficiaries and to keep people ready to fight. But when it comes to the expeditionary setting, does all the readiness effort that we expand courses, partnerships, does that translate to improve patient outcomes? If, if you can find evidence that shows clearly that it's a yes or damn near a yes, that, that's very powerful data to get what you want and to sustain a program that provides that skill set. 
So if people haven't read this paper yet, give me your 30-second elevator speech of why the paper is important and why someone should take the time to read it. It all goes back to the fact that amputations are exceedingly common in a deployed setting. They continue to be talking to people that have gone to Syria and other places in more recent deployments now that major conflicts have really wound down. And obviously, there's always concern of you know, the next near-peer uh, conflict. So these skills are not going, amputations are not going away. And, and I don't think anybody can really argue that. And I think this highlights where amputations happen in the military health system, how broadly surgeons are exposed to those kinds of cases and have to do those kinds of cases. And then it breaks it down further by looking at the traumatic amputations is how often and how widely prevalent is the need to decide amputation as a primary treatment like you would have to do when you're deployed. And I think it sets out very clearly that there is not broad enough exposure for everybody and that we do have to find those other ways to, to bolster volume, to bolster exposure, and to effectively augment with simulation and other coursework. We've been speaking with Dr. Patrick Osborne on Wardock's podcast. Thanks for sharing and discussing your paper and talking about your insights. And thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you, Doug. It was great talking to you, and I very much appreciate the opportunity. And now, a brief message from the chairman of the War Docs Board of Directors. Hi, I'm Major General Retired Jeff Clark, and I have the privilege to serve as chair of the War Docs Board of Directors. Let me begin by thanking AMSIS for our AMSIS War Docs partnership, Military Medicine, the International Journal of AMSIS, and specifically Dr. Steve Rothwell, the editor of our outstanding journal of military medicine. Readiness, a medically ready force and a ready medical force is central to military medicine. And anything that we want to understand and improve in medicine, and in particular military medicine, requires good research. It requires science. I want to thank the authors of these articles that are published in the Journal of Military Medicine for taking on the challenge of doing the research to understand what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go in improving the care we provide on the battlefield. I hope these authors inspire you to ask and answer the next Ready Medical Force question and publish in the Journal of Military Medicine. Thank you for what you and your family do in service to our nation. Be safe. May God bless. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.